The Pickleball Show is brought to you by PBX Club. PBX stands for Pickleball Excellence. Join today and get the latest pickleball tips and strategies, news, and opinion. Save money on paddles and other equipment with coupon codes to online pickleball retailers. Get travel discounts to tournaments and a whole lot more. How much does it cost to become a PBX Club member? Well, it's free. Just go to freepbxclub.com. That's freepbxclub.com. There's even a link in the show notes for this episode. FreePBXClub.com. PBX Pickleball Excellence. Join the club. It's free. This is Gail Leach, author of The Art of Pickleball, and here's the host of The Pickleball Show, Chris Allen. Thank you, Gail, and welcome to the show dedicated to helping you play better pickleball while having even more fun and meeting new friends who share your passion for this great sport. My name is Chris Allen, joining you today from Asheville, North Carolina. And what do you say, let's walk on over and see whose paddle is in the fence today. Now, sharing the court with the top players in the world takes tremendous physical ability, of course, but also great mental discipline and a champion's mindset. One man that does share the court with those people on a regular basis is Matthew Blom. And he does so with a combination of focus and tranquility that sets him apart from most others in the sport. Matthew, thank you for joining us today here on the Pickleball Show. I'm very curious to see what will come out of this, but it's good to be here. This is a mindset edition of the Pickleball Show, and in watching your YouTube videos of you playing in uh, the Nationals and other tournaments, I'm always struck by what seems to be a mindset from you that is, it's aggressive, it's a winning mindset, but it's not a mindset that's fueled from rage or anger. You can see the the peacefulness in the way you played, but like I said, it, it is deliberate. And I'm wondering uh, maybe what the keys to having that kind of successful mindset are. There's probably a lot I'm not aware of about it, but what I can say is I think it begins with where I learned pickleball, which was from my tennis coach in college. His name is Dave Lester, and he was actually the first... Uh, pickleball champion back in the 70s in the first pickleball tournament they ever had. Mm -hmm. And he was, like I said, my tennis coach and he taught us pickleball because he thought it would, that it was a beneficial thing to help your tennis game as well. But really what he was, uh, that I came to find out was he was a a spiritual teacher in in drag as a tennis coach. (laughs) And he used racket sports. He was a badminton coach as well, tennis coach, and then uh, did some pickleball, and he really saw that racket sports were a access point into learning about the mind and learning about how we relate with our emotions and our state of being, and what could really be done that would almost seem a little superhuman if you didn't know what you were getting into, and taught me some things that really shifted my whole perspective on sports, and especially I've done. I've done tennis, really high-level competitive league, badminton, table tennis, and then pickleball. And all of them, for me, were uh, vehicles for that study, the study of of me, of the human element of it. And I enjoy it as a sport. I enjoy the competition. But really, there's a lot more that I do it for, which is how can I use this as a, a way to learn about how I relate with my emotional state and and presence and really being able to be in the moment with something and to see what takes me out of that and to see how really a sport is a great way to do that because if you are off, you instantly know it because your level of play goes down. Mm -hmm. And being also a competitive person, I had that motivation. You know, we were discussing earlier about being an entrepreneur and I've also had that as an entrepreneur and something I've liked there is that profits are involved and money. So like learning about myself through that avenue has also been valuable because if I didn't have something to go for, I wouldn't have the motivation to to explore and really learn about myself. But pickleball now is the current channel for that in the sports realm. And then I have many others in a whole spiritual life as well. But that's where I think it comes from is seeing it that my the level of play has something to do with physicality for sure. And there's talent and there's learning the grip and the angles and how to move my body. And all of that is relevant, but there's something that goes beyond that. And I think what really separates champions in any, any field, if you like learn what Michael Jordan was doing mentally or what Roger Federer does, mm-hmm. I've gone into that to learn different uh, sports figures and then other figures and non-sports related things. 
And the mental aspect, they will say again and again, is a huge percentage of it. So taking that on is the foundation. And then I add on the, okay, I'm playing with a plastic wiffle ball and I've got this metal paddle in my hand, but what is really going on here? So keeping that in perspective, I think is probably the biggest thing. And then there's maybe some more specific questions we could get into of what that means, what that translates to on court. But it's really that, that approach to it in the first place, which I don't know how other people go about it. It may be different, it may be not. But I know for me, that's, that's underlying it all. That's the foundation of why I get on a court in the first place. One of my favorite books uh, came out in the 70s, Tim Galloway, and it was The Inner Game of Tennis. And he talks about the quiet mind in that. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was one of the things that struck me when I first started seeing you pop up in the videos in the championship matches. It just seemed like you play with a quiet mind. Yeah. I've even had been poked fun of a little bit of like being called a Zen master or something out yeah. there. <laughs> it's like, yeah, if Tim Nelson is the puppet master of pickleball, then you can be the Zen master of pickleball. <laughs> <laughs> but it really, it really is true that uh, like in the, in the book, he says that the player of the inner game comes to value the art of relaxed concentration above all other skills. Mm. That is really, it seems like where that championship mindset comes from is just a, a relaxed concentration. And I love in the, in the book where he differentiates between self one and self two, self one being the conscious mind and uh, who thinks it's the boss, but self too is actually the subconscious and it's actually doing all of the work, the great shots and the shots that are so fast that you couldn't even think about it if you wanted to. He sums it up perfectly when he says it's action faster than thought. To me, that's one of the things that is so addicting to pickleball. It's those moments when you have, you know, the, the big shootouts when the game is going so fast that you don't have time to think about it. You're almost, you become almost a spectator, mm-hmm. you know, just watching your own body do these things. That is when, that's my favorite part of the game. And I think for a lot of people, that's the addicting part of the game. I think about martial arts when you say that, about the way a, a kung fu master might train. You know, you do the, the punch a thousand times and learn the technique and, and have it available to you. So that in the moment when it's necessary, it is that other, you're calling self too, Mm -hmm. can react. You don't have to process it through your mind because you've done that enough times that it's in there. And I mean, I think about that as like you're saying the reflex follies or something up at net. I know I'm not thinking about it when it comes my way, but I have done it enough that I can be paying attention to other things. And I like that phrase a lot, relaxed concentration. Because even in those kind of hand-to-hand battles, really quick up at net, mm-hmm. what I find separates the people who win those points from those who don't is the level of anxiety that they have. Because if that starts to become, like you get tense and you get anxious and a little bit afraid, then you can no longer see the subtlety of what's happening. You know, when I'm watching my opponents and, and the ball, I'm seeing their body and where they are turned and where there's an opening on the court and where they're leaning so that the same level of shot, same power of it or direction, it makes a big difference if I blast it back at them or I blast it back at them at their left foot where they are going away from. And that is unavailable to someone if they are running some anxiety on the court or not in that state of relaxed concentration. Or like you were mentioning earlier, if they're still rehearsing the last bad shot they made and worried it's gonna happen again. All of those things take you out of that relaxed concentration or being there in the moment with it, which is where it's also the most fun. In that book as well, and many other people talk about the zone. And being in that zone, there's very little thought. I think there's some thought to direct some things, but it becomes where you are moving on court and responding instead of reacting to what's happening around you. And then because, at least how it is for me, my field of awareness is open when I'm in that zone. The relaxed concentration means I can take in, I have a feel of where my partner is on the court with me. I can see where my opponents are and learn about them and see what's happening. So it's not just I'm reacting to a ball in front of me, but there's actually a whole court and a whole dynamic that's taking place and can watch and observe that so that when the ball does come to me, I know where I'd like to put it because there's a perception. I can see it. I can feel it as I'm describing it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the key is in the distinction you just made, the, the difference between responding and reacting. Mm-hmm. To me, the, a lot of people might think they're the same thing, but there's a world of difference between those two things. Responding, uh, you know, you're, you're still creating 
your future. You're still, you know, you're on the offensive. If you're just reacting, you're in a totally defensive posture and you're just, you're taking what's getting thrown at you and, and just, you're not creating anything out of it. You're just reacting to it. I mean, think about if you're in the hospital and they give you uh, some medicine, think about the distinction that way. If, if the, oh, the patient is responding to the treatment, they're healing, they're creating, they're getting better. If they, if they have a reaction to the treatment, you know, it's a negative thing. Uh Uh-oh, they're having a reaction. We better back off. That's a great way to put it. I like that. I think you hit on the key right there. And and, uh, whether you realized it or not, you made that distinction. And that really is, I think, one of the differences to a winning championship mindset is that when when you're up at the net, you're responding to what uh, the opponents are giving you instead of just reacting to it. So kudos to you. I'm glad that came out in this. I'm trying to think of how to make this useful for someone listening to it. If you can be on court and get a feel for those distinctions so that you can know, oh, that is what I'm reacting. And like that medical response, I'm having an allergic reaction to this shot versus responding like you're out there on the court because you want other players to hit the ball to you. You know, that's that's the point. And so if that does come, how how would I respond here? And if I can, there's a choicefulness that mm-hmm. comes instead of a a mechanical reaction mm-hmm. that you are not really in, in control of. It probably translates itself into shot selection and realizing that you are loaded with options that, mm-hmm. you know, you're Cause I think when you're, when you're reacting, you're just wanting to get it back over the net. It's like, I'm just, I'm just going to feed it back to him, just whatever it takes. But if you're responding to it, it's like, I can go here, I can go there. I think that's part of the freeing nature of that word is, uh, yeah. you know, I've got plenty of responses I can do. I can go to go down at their feet. I can go across, I can go up, I can lob over. And yeah. just that, that freedom of knowing that, all right, you know, it'll be okay. I can, I've, I've got, you know, four or five different things here I can do. That freedom makes you a better player. And this is, this goes to then a competitive side of it for me is that when I or someone has those four or five options, what it means is that your, your opponents can never settle in because where, if you're reacting and if you're mechanical in what you do, then, and this is what I do when I'm watching my opponents is I'm learning what are their reactions to things. And if I can pick that up, it's a little like a poker player learning other players' tells. Mm-hmm. You know, if they scratch their face, they're probably bluffing. <laughs> that kind of thing. And so if, if they get a forehand down low, they're hitting this shot again and again, they become predictable. And then basically I'll hit them that shot and move to where they're going to hit it and then put it away. And if I or someone can be in a place where you have four or five options, then your, your opponents are always a little unsettled. And when someone's unsettled, they are a little more anxious. They will back up on their heels. And this then opens up more of the court for more angles and more shots that you can be put away or, you know, like you said, a lob at, the, at a moment when no one would expect it. It feels creative to me. And that's actually another thing I enjoy about the sport is the creativity of pickleball is one where it's not always the person who hits the hardest. Like some other sports have become more and more that way. The soft game, the touch, the angles, the spins, all of it is relevant and if you have the basics underneath you, you know, good footwork, a good grip, learning some of those angles and spins, then you become a little like a wild animal, I want to say. You don't know what's going to come from that person. And that is unsettling. And that's the state I want my opponents in, really, is that they're unsettled and don't know what's coming next so that I am responding and they're reacting. And then you can take your time and choose from a a cadre of different shots and go ahead and keep creating and keep writing the script. And then they're just, they're players in the play (laughs) and then you're writing the script. Yeah. When it goes well. And (laughs) why why I like to go to tournaments is that actually what is most exciting is when I'm on court with other script writers. You know, if I'm in my local league, I can write the script pretty much all the time Mm -hmm. and it becomes a little dry. But to go to where, okay, if I get, you know, all the names that you mentioned in the beginning, uh, Tim Nelson, Enrique, um, Wes, like, I mean, I could list a whole bunch of people. Then I'm with a peer and that's actually really exciting. Then I have to be on my edge and see who's going to write the script at this point because it could change from point to point and it does. Yeah. And that's what's, uh, what's exciting when you're you know, at that top level or wherever you're at, whatever level is your level where you're with peers. And sometimes it must be hard to, uh, if you if you are at that top level, you're you're in that rare air that only a few people can occupy, and you are in that level. You're you're among the top. It must be frustrating to not be able to play with those people 
every week or a couple of times a week uh, to have it just, you know, just when the big tournaments roll around. How do you keep your edge when you are playing, you know, with people who are not at the level that you're at? I'll speak to the first part and then answer your question. I remember last year at the Tournament of Champions, I got there and the day before and was playing with like Brian Staub and Phil Bagley and Kyle Yates and different people that I don't get to play with. And it wasn't the tournament yet. We were just warming up and having fun. And I, after one point, I think, or in the middle of it, I just exclaimed, like, I want to do this every week. Like, this is so great. This is what I wish I had. Uh-huh. But to your question, how do I do it? And I hope this is helpful for anyone who's finds himself at the top of where they, they play, is I give myself challenges when I go out. So let's say... I'll give a specific example, something I've been doing of late. When I go out and play on the return of serve, normally what I do is I slide over so that I hit very few backhands on a return of serve. For those who don't realize this, you can take a step or two over to your left if you're a right-handed player and basically eliminate the possibility they get to your backhand unless they've got a really accurate serve. Mm -hmm. So I do that and I rarely hit backhands. I just move around and I hit the forehand that I love to hit and I either come over with topspin or I hit my, my patented slice underhand return. But lately, I've been going out and like, you know, I'd like to work on my backhand, especially for singles. I want to be able to have a more accurate backhand to pass people and stuff. So I move the opposite direction and I go over and I hit all backhand returns. And if I go to net, one thing that I think is a weakness in my game is my consistency. Because of this uh, awareness that I have in some moments, I see a lot and I go for, for put away to put away the ball. And sometimes I do it on something that's a little bit too low and I should maybe hit it back and be more, more more consistent. So because I know that's something I need to work on, I'll do that when I'm playing with lower players and I'll go, okay, instead of putting this ball away, what is it like if I, I put this back, I hit a good shot, but put it over here instead of trying to just smack it. Mm-hmm. So I'll find things like that. You know, I want to work on lobs from the net. Instead of a dink return, I'll pop up a lob and see if I can get it over this player. And so I'll give myself many challenges to increase it. Since the players aren't really giving me that challenge very often, then I give myself my own challenge. And that's how I make it still engaging and enjoyable. And then there's the other part of it that I do like passing things on. I have a lot of experience on courts years and years and years. So there are things that new pickleball players don't know or have never come across or don't understand. And so there is something that I do like passing it on uh, in those moments too. And that that's another part of enjoyment for me. But in terms of my own game and how I keep it as sharp as I can, I only play like two or three times a month because to get good play, I have to drive an hour and a half from where I live. So it is a challenge for me. And thankfully, I have enough racket sport experience that I can keep my game decent, but um, it's nowhere near. You know, I know players that are in areas where there's a lot of good players and they get to play four or five times a week. And we'll see if I'm able to hang with them over the, the next couple of years, because that kind of time on court makes it hard to keep it sharp at that level. I think there is a pickleball heaven and I think it's called the Villages. Huh? Uh, there's other pockets I know in Arizona that's happening in Oregon more in Southern California, Seattle for sure. So I happen to live in a very small community. It's similar to Asheville, North Carolina, actually, but way smaller up in the foothills of Sierra Nevadas in Northern California. So I like where I live. I'm not going to move for pickleball, but I (laughs) miss it sometimes. You brought up earlier, you brought up uh, the uh, phenomenon of being in the zone and uh, I felt like this morning when I played, I was in the zone and then I dropped way out of the zone and then I, then I managed to, to claw my way back into the zone before we stopped playing. When I find myself in it and then I get out of it, it's usually because I'm, I'm reliving previous points. Instead of playing the point that I'm playing right now, I'm still trying to fix something that happened, you know, uh, one point ago or five points ago. And that just takes me off off my game and out of the rhythm. Have you trained your mind to where that really doesn't happen for you anymore? Or is it a constant struggle like the rest of us? I wouldn't say I'm free from it, but I would say that I have a perspective that changes it from where most people go, from what I can see. Like you're saying, you're going over past points. There's a way that I see most people go over past points, which is they go over it with disgust. They go over it with maybe some embarrassment or some upset and they get down on themselves about it. That, I would say, is, is really the dynamic that has someone go downhill. I rarely have an outburst on court like where I'm upset about something, but I do ex- exclaim things, and they're usually what I exclaim are notes to myself of what I just did that I want to learn from. Hmm. 
you're giving yourself more of a course correction. If you exclaim something, it's it's a, almost like you're yelling to a, a driver, you know, oh, you know, turn here. This is, you know, some, some way to, to correct the course, maybe. Is that? Yeah, I like that. Exclaiming to a driver, like, oh, you know, turn right or get, you know, get out of that mm-hmm. lane or whatever it is. Like, especially there's danger. Yeah. <laughs> so, and where I, where I see people go downhill as if they, they, they say something like, ah, oh, damn it. Or like, you know, it's something that is really, there may be learning inside of it, but the way that they're going about learning is by berating themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that berating yourself, it's like, you can think about it, what you would like in a partner. And I've seen this dynamic on court. And I know some players out there who, Sometimes they have a tough time finding partners because people don't like playing with them. Mm-hmm. Because what they will do instead of finding ways to encourage or keep their their partner as much in that relaxed concentration as they as they can help them to do, they will berate them and say like, "What are you doing?" or "Why'd you make that shot?" or whatever it is. And it's because they talk to themselves that way too. Oh yeah, there's there are a lot of people that uh, you would never think to talk to a partner that way, nor would you expect the partner to continue playing with you, but you'll talk to yourself that way day in and day out. Why would you treat yourself worse than you would treat a stranger that just walked up and said, hey, can I play? Mm-hmm. Also, I try to eliminate the shoulds from any feedback that I give myself. And a lot of times that's the spiral you get into. Oh, I should have done this. I shouldn't have done this. And Mm -hmm. should is the most energy killing word out there. I mean, you can't even, you know, even when somebody says it, you can't say it in an upbeat way, Uh, (laughs) you know, and it's not, it's not just related to pickleball, but anything. Hey, did you clean your room? No, but I should. Whenever you say should, your voice just drops. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I should lose 20 pounds. You know, it just, it just, you can hear the energy, you know, the, the, air being let out of the balloon whenever somebody says should. And a lot of times that's when I get into those spirals that take me out of playing well is when I start the shoulds and I start, you know, I should have done, I should have hit up on it. I should, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have hit that, you know, pop that one up. And then, so I try, if I start hearing a bunch of shoulds, I try to get a grip on it and get out of it, you know, easier said than done, but I just try to move to a, a different place in my mind and, mm-hmm. uh, and not keep those shoulds going constantly. Cause that is one way to kill some energy and momentum there. It's gold what you're saying. And I, I have somewhat of an antidote to the shooting, which I think is a really useful one because there's a way that that could be heard as like, okay, so now I shouldn't should. And what do you do with it if you notice yourself? And so what I find more useful, if you catch yourself in it or someone catches themselves in it, like I should have gone cross court there, is to find out, well, what was in the way of that happening? That question then gives me access to a way that I was, I was operating. I was going about something because in that moment, I was thinking that I was making the best choice. Mm-hmm. And so if that wasn't the best choice after the moment has gone by, the aspects, the part of me that was up in that moment did think it was making the best choice. Otherwise, it wouldn't have done it. If I could have seen a better choice, I would have done it. So if looking back, one can see there was a better choice there than to see what was in the way of me seeing that choice. Because if I could have seen it, I would have taken it. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I just have to say, you know, give yourself a break. You're not an idiot now and you weren't an idiot, you know, 20 seconds ago. Uh, You know, you made that choice and it was the best choice, you know, you thought at the time. Now you know a little different. So, you know, going, yeah. going forward, uh, you know, put that in the uh, memory banks there. And, uh, and when it comes up again, make a different one. I've played with some people that, uh, I mean, they're almost schizophrenic when they get mad at themselves. It's, it's almost like somebody else's voice. I think probably most commonly with guys, it might be their dad's voice from 30 years ago in the bleachers on a football field somewhere. Yeah. And, but they're almost like channeling this voice of, you know, you stink, you know, get out of, you know, you shouldn't even be here and stuff like that. And it's like, wow, where's that coming from? But then the next point, and I mean, they're just as nice as they can be. It's how we all learn to learn. We get that, you saying from father's voice or a coach or a teacher or anything. I haven't seen this movie, but I saw a little clips of it. This movie Whiplash mm-hmm. about a teacher, like a drum or a musical instructor right, yeah. who uses that method. And some people may think it's effective. And in one way, it could be. But what you're really doing is you're teaching someone that the way to learn, the way to expand something that you want to know more about is to scare the crap out of yourself to get motivation. (laughs) Uh And so dad did it early on and would make you feel shameful and bad about yourself as a way to motivate yourself. And it can have some effect. But boy, it's not the quality of life that I want at all. Mm-mm. I don't want to talk to myself that way. I don't want to talk to other people that way. I think learning, this gets into some philosophy here. It goes way beyond pickleball. But 
I think learning is such an innate and natural part of being a human being. Children are so acquisitive. They want to know about their world, and that's they ask these questions. Why? 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 They're just, they are sponges looking to absorb. If that is nurtured and continued, I think that it never ends. But it's when something else comes in, like learning is something that uh, I have to get good at. I should know this. Uh, if I don't, I will be put down. I will be shamed. I will be made fun of. Whatever that come, turns into. So that's then they start carrying that method of learning into everything. And pickleball is one example. So if that's how they think that life goes and they make a mistake in pickleball, they better have a voice that comes in and berates them. Because otherwise, how are they going to learn? Mm -hmm. If they've never had another experience of learning that can be very alivening, can be very invigorating, like, wow, look at what just happened, that you are naturally drawn to then finding better choices. And like, like you said, I think very nicely, maybe they've never encountered that before. And how cool that you got a new experience. Now, when competition and points and you think you got a win comes in, it's, it's a little bit harder to have that kind of approach to learning, but it's still available. And I've used this metaphor of like, uh, you wouldn't criticize a first grader who didn't know trigonometry. Their step is to get their addition down and subtraction. And so you don't hold them to a standard that they should know trigonometry or geometry or algebra or anything at that point. It would be ridiculous if you were berating them for it. But people in pickleball or other avenues will berate themselves because they don't know trigonometry when they're still working on addition. Mm -hmm. And if they're holding themselves to that standard, then it's really a never-ending fight instead of where am I actually at? And to be able to see that honestly, like where I'm at is here. So this is the next step. And if I get a shot that was beyond that, like, wow, applaud my opponent, really well done. I hope I see that 10 more times so I can start to learn it. That changes the whole mentality on court and leaves it as a very positive experience. I mean, sport, the word sport is like a pastime, fun, enjoyment, and hopefully it can be that for people. And when those other things come in, you may overall feel like you're having fun, but in that moment, you're in hell. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're not having fun. It's not enjoyable. And that carries with you and you know, stresses your body, stresses your heart, stresses your, your blood pressure, all of that stuff that is happening. And then, as we said at the earlier part of the show, it takes you out of any chance of being in a zone or having a relaxed concentration, which it's my experience, sounds like yours, and anyone who, can, who finds trips over that experience, you know it is the highest state you can achieve in pretty much anything. But in playing sports, it's where championships are won. And not even that you need to go that high. It could be in recreational play. You just leave, like you said, your whole day is affected by having a high percentage of that be your experience while playing. And it leads into hopefully this interview, into what's happening next, how you talk to your kids, how you talk to your spouse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they feed off of one another. They do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with what we're talking about, about like you mentioned, you know, that you wouldn't criticize a first grader because you know uh, where they are and what stage there are. And uh, again, with the inner game of tennis, uh, 40 years ago, Tim Galloway put it so, so well when he talked about the rose. And I've got my dog-eared copy here. And this is this is one of my favorite little passages from that. He says, when we plant a rose seed in the earth, we notice that it is small, but we do not criticize it as rootless and stemless. We treat it as a seed, giving it the water and nourishment required of a seed. When it first shoots up out of the earth, we don't condemn it as immature and underdeveloped, nor do we criticize the buds for not being open when they appear. We stand and wonder at the process taking place and give the plant the care it needs at each stage of its development. The rose is a rose from the time it is a seed until the time it dies. Within it, at all times, it contains the whole potential. It seems to be constantly in the process of change, yet at each state, at each moment, it is perfectly all right as it is. If you can talk to yourself that way, which is a lot easier said than done, especially you know in stressful times, if, but if you can muster the, the discipline to talk to yourself that way and treat yourself that way, I really do think that that helps unlock some keys to having the quiet mind and being able to play at the top of your ability. I'm really absorbing that passage. I like it a lot. Matthew, do you have any pre-match rituals or anything that you do uh, to get yourself in the proper mindset? I've never had an answer to this question, but I realize that I, I now do. And it maybe sounds weird, but my pre-match ritual is to study my life. Because I'm not looking for 
being in the zone to be an isolated pickleball experience. All the things that I study on pickleball court, I'm studying in the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I want to look at what's in the way of me making more harmonious choice in my conversation, in how I make lunch, in how I decide about my business, in how I relate to my partner. Like, so my pre-match ritual is that I want to be in that state. We haven't defined it exactly what that state is, but in a state of presence, in a state of being there in the moment. So my pre-match ritual is the rest of my life. So I walk on the pickleball court. It's not like I do something different. I'm not trying to change something like, okay, now I'm going to now I'm going to try and not be negative, you know, or something to that <laughs> yeah. effect. Like, uh, why would I isolate that to a cement block with blue co- coloring and white lines on it? Uh, only, only when I'm holding a wiffle ball will I be a positive person. Right. Like, <laughs> I think, you know, living in the moment is one of the, one of the addicting things uh, that, that pickleball and a lot of sports have. They force you to be present in the moment. Yeah. To me, that's what part of the attraction is to people that want to go to the beach. The beach, the ocean is just so awe-inspiring. It forces you to be present in the moment. It demands your attention. Just like a a sunset, a beautiful sunset demands your attention right then, right there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't be thinking about something that happened in the past or something that's going to happen in the future when this awe-inspiring thing is right in front of you. You mentioned all these things like a sunset or pickleball and on the beach. The real study for me is that those are excellent. I think you said the word like you're forced into being present Mm -hmm. when you play pickleball. It's true. It's why we are attracted or sometimes addicted to certain things because they are a context. They are an environment or a compartment where we have more more of that state of presence. And that is an attractive thing. And it can give me an impression of what's possible in the rest of my life because life is that alive. Life is that vibrant. Even in the ordinary moments, it's that we think that there's nothing going on. And so we miss it all. I think about when they talk about baseball players and they say that you know, the best players can read the stitches on the fastball. Yeah, I try and uh, watch the holes on a pickleball. Sometimes. That's what I was going to ask you if 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 you did, because to me it's sort of, it's sort of a chicken and, and the egg thing. I mean, most people assume that well, they're so gifted, they have such great eyesight, and they can slow the game down to such a degree that they can actually it's like slow motion. They can see the stitches coming in. But I think that it might be the other way around. I think that it might be that they're using it as an exercise. They're trying to see the stitches on the fastball, and that gives their conscious mind something to do and allows the the subconscious to go ahead and take over. I think that there might be some of that too. And I was going to ask if you uh, did things like that, if you tried to see which way the ball was spinning or, or, or mm-hmm. count the holes in the ball as it's coming to you, and if that might be a technique that can help kind of make work project for your conscious mind to do while your subconscious gets on with the real work of uh, playing well and playing at the top of your abilities. So you do do that. It all co- depends on where you're coming from, is how I view it. And this, is, this gets into the realm that I was working with with Dave Lester back in, in college. There's a great player, uh, Brian Ashworth, uh, a good buddy of mine. I really enjoy him. And he and I were talking, this was a year and a half ago or something. And, and I don't remember how it came out, but I said to him, you know, what I see could really help you is to, is to slow the ball down. And he looked at me kind of confused, like, what does that mean? And I barely know how to explain it, but I know the feeling of it. And he apparently experimented with that and came back a year later and he said, I got it. I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, like, slow the ball down. And the reason I say it's where you're coming from, because yes, I think going out and watching the ball and finding and seeing the, the holes, see if you can see the individual holes as it comes over the net could be a great exercise. But that exercise could be done with stress and tension. And that same exercise could be done with relaxation and allowing that to take place. Does the baseball player see the stitches because he is really concentrating and like, I'm clenching my fist and clenching my face right now, like that kind of efforting Mm -hmm. to concentrate? Maybe you'd be able to see the stitches through that, but I don't think that would make one a better baseball player. I think it would happen if there is a relaxation, if there's that relaxed concentration where it feels like it's an it's extrasensory or almost superhuman because it looks like you're seeing more deeply into what's happening around. That in pickleball is, has a lot to do with sight. I think sight and proprioception of like the feeling of your body in space and being able to see that in other players. So the ball, the experience is that it slows down. Has the ball actually slowed down in, in pace? Not at all. But your perception of it has shifted so that it feels like you have more time because you are there with more of the moments. Mm -hmm. 
I'll see if I can make this metaphor. It's like in a movie, we are not actually seeing a continuous stream of events in a movie. We are seeing frames and there's the term frames per second. And there's enough frames per second that it tricks our minds into thinking that it's continuous. It creates the illusion of motion. Exactly. It's all an illusion in that. And there's a way that we grab frames per second in, in our visual sight too. You can watch this and observe it. And in presence, it becomes more continuous. So there's actually more frames per second. It's like it becomes high, higher definition. Mm-hmm. And higher definition means more defined. More defined means I might see those holes. I might see the spin more. I might see the ball and it begins to slow down almost like the movie became slow motion. To make a slow motion video, you need more frames per second. So that starts to happen and you can see it. And if you have that capacity, imagine that you have that capacity and the other three players on court do not. You will have a significant advantage in that situation. You respond and move your paddle and get it up in the right position and do the stroke that you know how to do, and you can put that ball where you want it. Um, I can speak personally. One of the things I'm always, I don't know, get a lot of comments about is like, nobody hits angles like you do. And part of that is because I have a little bit more time because of this slowing down. Some of it's my height and reach. That is an impact for sure. But there's also... I have a little more time to take that ball and cut it. And basically, one of the things that Dave Lester had me do with my tennis racket was he put a paintbrush on the end of it and had me paint on a wall, like on a big canvas. Hmm. That has been my experience ever since, that my paddle and racket is an extension of my arm. It's like if I had a very long hand and I was going to brush this ball, like with the back of my hand, just kind of stroke it and caress it almost. And that I can put spin, I can drop it, I can really power it through. I wish I had a video of this because I'm doing it with my hand right now. (laughs) And it's like the ball is sitting up on a platter for me to do that with. Instead of it coming hard at me, it's like right there and I can scoop it off and place it where I want it. When I am in this state, because the greater awareness is there, not only can I scoop it off and put it where I want, but I can also see where my opponents are and where it will cause the most trouble for them. So the ball is slower for me and I can scoop it and put it where it's more trouble for them. Now, I know that uh, that I would be remiss, and I, I can already picture all of the comments coming in, uh, people saying, why didn't you ask him about his paddle? You have to get him to talk about the paddle. <laughs> the paddle that you use is really a unique shape. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about it and how you came to prefer that one over the standard uh, dimensions that most people play with. There's some design and some by chance. So I told you I, you know, I was a college tennis player. I played uh, competitive badminton. I actually lived in Korea for a year. I played in the club there. So I got to be in a country where they actually considered a real sport. <laughs> and yeah. um, I also played uh, competitive table tennis, both here and other countries. So getting into a design like, like a tennis racket, tennis racket and badminton rackets specifically, they have a longer reach and they are set towards being long and have the paddle head out extended from your hand. So there's some of that involved where a pickleball paddle traditional size is more squat and short and wide. Mm-hmm. The chance, the luck part of this was that uh, my friend Prem Carnot, uh, known as the pickleball guru. Oh yeah, we've um, spoken with Prem. Yeah. So he actually, uh, briefly, my history, I studied, I learned pickleball back when I was in college and then didn't play for 13 years when I was off in Asia and East Africa and really exploring a lot of what I'm talking about now, like a spiritual pursuit. And I didn't play any sports during that time because I considered competition and athletics to be not spiritual along with lots of other things. Anyway, Prem, I met through a whole other route, something called nonviolent communication, and he said, hey, you heard of pickleball? And I'm like, yeah, I played it back in college and I haven't played. And he's like, well, come out and play. And so he and his wife, Wendy, got me back into pickleball. And he gave me one of his used paddles, which happened to be a long paddle. So I saw the other ones that were shorter. And, and I played with this. And I'm like, wow, I really like this. And there, at that time, the, the paddle was really dead. It was an old one and didn't have any pop to it. But I realized that there was something it did give me, which is... The best word I have for it is torque. And I don't know if it's the right use of the word torque, but when you, if you imagine a whip and you have a four foot long whip and you crack it, Mm -hmm. and if you have an eight foot long whip and you crack that, the crack, the force, the power, the torque at the end of those two whips, the four foot is, I don't know the percentages, but 
it's a significant amount less than the eight foot whip. Well, have you ever, did you ever play that game when you were a kid where, where you'd all join hands and you'd be on the end of the whip? Oh yeah. <laughs> and I mean, think about it in those terms too. Think if you had three people playing that game or if you had 30 people playing that game and you're on the end, when you're number 30, you come flying off of there. Exactly. So I've thought about creating a video training website and doing videos on things and explaining a lot of these things that I learned through all the racket sports and apply to pickleball. And one of them is this action of, of whip and torque. Mm -hmm. So I'll get back to the paddle in a second. But one way I thought about it is I remember growing up, another thing as a kid is I would like to go out and pick up sticks and smack them against a tree to have them break in half. Mm -hmm. Have you ever done this? Or I don't oh, know if yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> so if you have one that's short and you try that, it almost never works. You need one that's got length to it because when you hit the tree, it breaks because the other end of it is still traveling and it has that torque, it has that momentum and, and cracks through. So back to my paddle, the length of it adds that extra torque. So why I have one of the most powerful serves, why I have one of the most powerful like put away shots or overheads, all that stuff, there's lots of technique, there's a whipping action to my whole arm, my whole body. I mean, that's, that would take a lot of video and explanation. I love that stuff because body dynamics are a big part of it. It's why like Kung Fu masters can punch through things because it's, even if they're not big and bulky, they have the mechanics. So that's a part of it. And the paddle adds another couple inches on the top that carries through and has that extra reach and momentum that will add more pop to it. And it's worth it to you because you have to sacrifice some width to get the little bit extra length. And it's worth it to you to have a paddle that's not nearly as wide just so it can be a little bit longer. That goes back to something we talked about earlier, but also training oneself to hit the sweet spot on a paddle. Like I have my paddle in my hand right now and the sweet spot on it is so worn out. I can see exactly where I hit. I almost never hit outside of that on the edge of the paddle. So extra width does nothing for me. You just don't need it because you're so accurate uh, in terms of hitting that sweet spot that it would just be wasted and it would probably grab the air more and probably slow your paddle down a little bit more. Exactly. It is aerodynamically less efficient for it. And I think most players hit well enough in the center that extra width is irrelevant to them. The other thing, and this is, a, this is huge, in addition to the torque, when I'm up at net, so I'm 6'3", I'm 6'4", six, six, in, that, in that range, so I already have a height advantage. But then there are so many balls when you're up at the net that come over that if you could reach them, you could take them out of the air and hit it down at your opponent, often for a put-away. If not a put-away, you can get it down at their feet. And if you can't reach that ball, then you have to back up and take it off the bounce. Well, as we know, pickleballs don't bounce very high. So that's why the dink shot is effective, is it puts your opponents on the defensive because the ball bounces so low and they have to hit it back up and usually get into those dinking rallies until someone can put the ball away. Now, why a lot of players avoid hitting to me when I'm on the court is because I have extra reach. And those dinks, they have to be really accurate. Otherwise, I'm going to reach over and smack it at them. Mm -hmm. My height is a big part of that. My body position and how I can lean forward. But then I've got another two inches. Another two inches, anyone can benefit from. If I could design a paddle that would still have the same uh, sweet spot in it, I would happily add another inch or two. It's well worth it. Then it gets to the size of like a badminton bracket for me, which is well outside of my reach, but I can then get to things and stretch and hit overheads and all that's involved in badminton. So that's another big part of it is that I can reach forward and pick off balls and I can also reach side to side with another inch or two. And that means it's harder to get the ball by me. So I actually creep over quite a bit. I play near the center of the center of the court because I can still reach my line and then I'm over and I can pick off and reach balls that my partners would have to let bounce, but I can reach in and, and pick it off. So all of those reasons are why I like this paddle tremendously. And I get it specially designed by a guy named Brian Jensen. He, I consider a mad scientist of pickleball paddles. He knows more <laughs> than anyone I've ever talked to. And I, I love geeking out with him about it and the design and the material. And he knows like all about the way when you hit a ball, like how much your racket flexes. Like when you hit it off center, mm -hmm. there's actually a little bit of flexing that happens and that's why it deadens and why the sweet spot is important to hit it on the, on the deadline center of the paddle. I mean, I have them designed by him and I have no reason to change. There has never been any paddle that's come out. All the new releases of Paddle Tech and Evoke and all the stuff, I have no interest in them. Unless they make a long paddle, I have zero interest because there's no material that I would give up this length for. I actually don't know why more players don't play with it. I think it's a lot about what other people see, and so they think that's what pickleball paddles are supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of people in my local club have gotten this paddle because they've seen me use it and like, oh, well, maybe I should try that out. And they've they've converted. Originally, I did invite you on to talk about your serve. And sometimes I wonder if it's a little bit of an optical illusion with that paddle. And sometimes, though, I think it comes dangerously close to a sidearm serve. Do you ever do hear people uh, at tournaments pointing that out to you or thinking that maybe you are serving sidearm? Have you ever been cautioned? Is it an optical illusion that the paddle just looks like maybe it's above your wrist? I have questioned it myself. And so what I did was I videotaped it and I videotaped a bunch of the different serves that I hit and found clearly, and I would, I would let anyone videotape it if they had that question because it happens so fast, but the moment of contact is always, I'm well below a 90 degree angle. It's near 45 when I contact the ball. What I'm doing is I'm coming up so fast to generate the topspin that I hit the ball and immediately come up over it. And so just milliseconds after, I am parallel and the racket is above my wrist. But point of contact, it is below. Every time I videotape myself, I have confirmed that well below, like not even a consideration like, am I like at two degrees south of, <laughs> of parallel? No, it's like at least 30 or 45 degrees south of it. So I had that question because I'm not looking to hit an illegal serve, but I am looking to hit as good a serve as I can. Mm -hmm. And there is a slight advantage with my height there too, because I am contacting the ball a few inches higher. So I'm coming over the net. You know, in tennis, uh, you know, someone who's 6'8 can really put that serve down because they're hitting it at a higher spot. But that's to answer your question. I've, I've checked it out so that I could say to anyone who would call me on it, I have video of it and you're welcome to videotape me. And if you see something different, let me know because I've confirmed it for myself that it's, that it's legal. Oh, yeah. And uh, I've always thought that, too, that, I mean, the eyes, the most well-trained eyes in pickleball are watching you when you are playing at the Nationals. Obviously, it passes their test. And mm -hmm. so, you know, who am I watching a little YouTube video? Uh, so it's obviously, you know, a legal serve. It's just amazingly uh, forceful, one of the most powerful serves. And I've always wondered why a serve like that isn't more prevalent, especially at the highest levels, because, you know, you need every advantage. You need to use every tool you have in your toolbox. To me, there's no better time to pull something out to try to gain a slight edge than right at the beginning of the point when you're holding the ball and you can do whatever you want with the ball. Mm -hmm. I've never been able to convince myself to subscribe to the just get it in philosophy and you know where the point really doesn't start until the third shot i don't want it to start then i want it to start right away <laughs> yeah i don't want to uh lose any advantage i have especially in a game where the receiving team really has a little bit of an advantage already because one of them's already up at the line the other mm -hmm. one's pretty much going to get a free pass up to the line so as the serving team it's one of the few sports that you're actually at a disadvantage yeah so i want to do whatever i can to try and and you know tilt those scales back a little bit do you think that that's going to be the wave of the future you think two or three years from now you're going to see people take the serve and the return a lot more seriously well boy i'm really excited where the sport may go and I do believe that. You're, you're speaking a lot of the things that I think about the serve. So in a way, I want to play the other side of it, which is the only thing for someone to consider if they're looking at getting their, upping their serve is that missing your serve has some, some real downsides, obviously. And there is a certain level of consistency that you'd want to have, I think, before you start adding in. And you said pace and direction. There's actually five variables that I play with on my serve. I use the serve, like you said, I have the ball in my hand and it is the first shot of the game, of this point. So I'm looking to that. Can I set off a domino effect that a, a really good serve might win the point outright? A really good serve might pop a force, uh, a weak return, which I can put away on the third shot. Or it might force a weaker return, which then means I get to hit a better third shot and then move in and it's set off a domino effect that every shot, myself and my partner, have a little advantage, and we can continue to exploit that advantage. Mm -hmm. Like you said, the returner has uh, the returning team has the advantage. I've I've thought about pickleball almost that receiving is when you're serving compared to other sports like tennis. That's when you have the advantage. Table tennis also have the advantage when you serve. If a player that I'm playing against is happy to just get the ball in on their other side, I am happy to just rip that ball, that return, and I think that as players get better and more consistent and especially as more tennis players come out. I see tennis players when they bring the last, the tournament of champions is a good example, like Rob Elliott and uh, then Dan Moore coming out and winning the singles in nationals, two ex college elite tennis players. And they know how to hit the ball. They know how to rip it and keep it in. And so 
that is going to happen more and more. And then I just need to learn some dinking. So that's, I'm coming from that background too. I haven't played the sport that long. I'm like three, three, four years in now, but I'm bringing all those other experiences. And if people can be consistent to, to hit it hard and really rip that serve and then get in some spin and variation as well, and then same on the return, I definitely see it changing. I think that that, that kind of lobbing serve to get just get it in, it is useful. What it has is consistency, is that you'll rarely miss it. Mm-hmm. And I know I listened to a little bit of the Coach Mo interview you did, and for a lot of players, that's probably the advice they need, is get your serve consistent, get it in, don't miss that serve. I'm okay with, like what you said, I'm okay to risk it to get maybe two or three or four easy, free, or points that we have the advantage on from the very beginning. And I might miss a serve once a game. I go for low margin of error over the net. I'm really ripping it. I might hit one long. So I have to be okay with that. And I've come to terms with that, that I will miss some for the the level of aggression that I'm taking on it. Because the ball's in my hand. I will never have it set up better, at least at the baseline. I might get a better put away at the net because that's the position. So yeah, to your question, I think it will change. I think that it'll become something that people will study more of how can I get the advantage on the serve and how can I get the advantage in the return. Because a lot of the game right now is kind of a lobbing serve in and then a lobbing return. And also, I should say, I'm speaking from a younger player's perspective, more athletic, more energetic, like something that Coach Mo said, which I think is a great piece of advice for players with limited mobility, is that he says he hits that ball as slowly as he can, as he needs to, for the time it takes him to get to net, yep. which is a great piece of advice. I can hit a hard return and still get in net. So I'm going to do that because I'm then looking for that third ball to come up a little higher and with my long paddle and long reach and hopefully a relaxed concentration, I can do a lot with that shot and keep them pinned to the baseline or even put that third ball away or that uh, fourth ball away. Well, it'll be exciting to see what the future of pickleball holds. Hopefully our future here on the Pickleball Show will uh, have in it uh, another conversation with you, Matthew, because I really enjoyed talking with you today. Likewise. Yeah. I, I'm appreciating that you have some uh, interest and perspective, especially in the inner game side of it, that we could go to that depth because you know, you're, you're feeding the conversation as well. And I sometimes hold that in because I don't know if people are interested or, or care as much about it as I do. But that is a real passionate part of, of life for me and also then pickleball by extension. So I'm glad that came out. And then we can get into nuts and bolts and other things too. Sounds good, Matthew. We look forward to it. That is Matthew Blom. He gave us plenty to think about. And uh, if you need even more pickleball tips, tricks, strategies, go over to freepbxclub.com and download your copy of the top 10 tips from pickleball's three greatest coaches, Coach Mo, Deb Harrison, Prame Carno, together in one quick study guide that will definitely take your game to the next level freepbxclub.com you can go over there right now and get your copy don't need a credit card all you need is an email address we'll send it right over to you send us an email anytime you like mail at pickleballshow.com you can find us on facebook facebook.com slash pickleballshow twitter.com slash pickleballshow we keep it easy for you head over to itunes if you get a chance leave us a five-star review we sure would appreciate it i'm chris allen this is the pickleball show and until next week keep them low The Pickleball Show is brought to you by PBX Club. PBX stands for Pickleball Excellence. Join today and get the latest pickleball tips and strategies, news, and opinion. Save money on paddles and other equipment with coupon codes to online pickleball retailers. Get travel discounts to tournaments and a whole lot more. How much does it cost to become a PBX Club member? Well, it's free. Just go to freepbxclub.com. That's freepbxclub.com. There's even a link in the show notes for this episode. FreePBXClub.com. PBX Pickleball Excellence. Join the club. It's free.